Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht, and I'm here with Professor John Givens, uh, who's written a book, uh, The Image of Christ in Russian Literature, where he's covering uh, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Bulgakov, and Pasternak. So thank you for being with us, John. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation and for your interest in my book. Yeah, it was uh, quite an interesting book, I think. Uh, so I was wondering at the beginning here, could you start us off by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, You know, how you got interested in Russian literature, where you went to school, who you studied with, and so on? Sure. Um, a brief biography would have to include the fact that I was an indifferent language student who went to his local college, the University of Oregon, on a journalism scholarship. So I came in on a journalism scholarship and went out as a Russian major uh, between 1980 and 1985, breaking my mom's heart because she knew what a journalism major would do with a degree, but she had no idea what a Russian major was going to do with a degree back then. (laughs) Uh, You either spy or you teach, and uh, I ended up getting into teaching almost by accident, really. But I I got into the University of Oregon. They had a fantastic Russian program, and the only reason I stumbled into it is because my undergraduate advisor was a Russian history professor who, uh, when he asked me, what what language are you going to study because we've got a language requirement? And I told him, well, you know, I'm not really interested, <clears throat> excuse me, in the in the traditional European languages. He said, well, why not Russian? And uh, so I, I took Russian. Uh, but in the first couple of weeks, uh, you know, as, as, as you know, it's tough sledding at first and uh, wanted to drop. And, but, and I was kind of a naive kid back then. So I went into my Russian professor, a wonderful guy, Jim Rice, now since passed. University of Oregon, and uh, he did what all Russian professors do when a first-year Russian student comes to them to tell them that they're going to drop the class. He lied. He told me, you have great Russian, John. You're going to be wonderful. You should stick around. And uh, I felt so guilty. I stayed in uh, the class. And what he then did is every day he'd come and he'd start the class off with a Russian question to me. And that's how he really instilled in me both a fear and a love of Russian. (laughs) <laughs> fear and love that's a uh, it's very machiavellian think of it. <laughs> so what happened then is you know as, as what happens with all of us when we, when we finally do get into russia and you, you you get rather uh, carried away with it i said this is fantastic i went to the soviet union in 1984 for a four-month program at the pushkin institute came back had this great desire to teach russian went to a, a two-year terminal master's degree thinking I was just going to get some teaching credentials and get out there and teach Russian. So I went from University of Oregon to University of California, Davis, where they had a nice little uh, two-year teaching um, program. And there I, I met a couple of wonderful professors, uh, uh, Danny Rancor Laferriere, uh, who was a full professor there, and a visitor from Berkeley, Galia Dement, who was a ABD uh, uh, dissertation, uh, PhD candidate. And the two of them instilled in me a, a, a great love of an interest in literary analysis. 
And so I decided, you know what, I think I'm going to try another degree. And uh, for reasons I won't entirely disclose here, I ended up at the University of Washington for my PhD, where actually I was able to bring Galia Demant up as a, a new hire. I was the graduate student on the search committee that brought her there, and because I, I really wanted to work with this woman, she became my dissertation advisor in Washington, and um, and so it is in this way that it turns out that I now have a degree uh, in, in every state on the West Coast. Uh, that's a very unusual. Uh, usually, we go to the professors rather than the reverse. <laughs> <laughs> that's the strange thing. Now, I went to University of Washington. There were wonderful people to work with there. But when when the position came up, and I thought, well, I know exactly who would make a perfect addition to the faculty here. So you're absolutely right. This is a totally random and kind of uh, a haphazard introduction to Russian, but uh, you know, kind of fatalistic at the same time. Huh. Well, that is a good uh, good story. So, uh, you're you're covering in the book uh, kind of four of the big greats of of Russian literature: uh, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Bulgakov, and and Pasternak. Uh, maybe again uh, for the uninitiated, uh, you know, everybody's heard of uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, but maybe in the United States or the West in general, Bulgakov in particular would probably be the least, um, you know, uh, familiar up front. So I was wondering if you could just maybe riff for, a, you know, a few minutes on what it is that makes these four authors such key parts of the canon. Absolutely. So when you decide uh, at some point in your career that maybe you're going to write a book on the image of Christ in Russian literature, the first thing you discover is that you are facing an impossible bibliographic demand. There's so much out there just on Christ alone, on Christology, on various uh, schools of thought about um, uh, both historical, theological, about who this man was. That you just that you you realize, uh, especially if you weren't trained in the in 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 these areas, that you're going to have a lot of of upfront research to do, and I knew that that uh, to to write a book called The Image of Christ in Russian Literature, I, I would have to somehow narrow the field so that the book could be written. It's one thing just getting up to speed on what. Uh, theologians and scholars are saying about uh, Jesus Christ. It's another thing to, to, to look at the, at the 200 plus years of, of what we'd consider contemporary Russian literature that is dating from Pushkin to the present day and um, cover all of that territory looking for uh, references to Christ and, and, and ideas about who this, you know, how this person is imaged in literature. So uh, I decided I would stick with the four authors who, uh, whose uh, work most prominently uh, attempts to image uh, Christ. Uh, so in the 19th century, certainly Dostoevsky, uh, we all know that his novels are, are permeated with a Christian ethos and that, and that Jesus Christ was a very uh, important person to him uh, personally. Uh, and, and, and so there's no surprise that Dostoevsky should be in a book like this. Tolstoy, uh, again, everyone knows that Tolstoy <clears throat> shortly after Anna Karenina had a bit of a, what, what, what many people call a religious conversion, kind of an unorthodox one though, in which he uh, suddenly realized after writing these two great masterpieces that there wasn't anything left for him to accomplish. And the only thing that was before him was his eventual death. And how was he going to make sense of that? So he turned to his own native uh, Orthodox religion to look for answers uh, to the, to this uh, riddle of life and death and, um, and discovered two things that the, 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 uh, the, the Russian Orthodox church, its doctrines and dogmas and its rituals left him cold and indifferent but that the uh, teachings of Jesus Christ uh, inflamed in him a great desire uh, to uh, to to live according to the precepts of of this of this great teacher, something that he, by the way, knew as early as. Uh, 1854, uh, 55, in a diary entry, he talks about um, wanting to, to create a uh, kind of an, uh, a new kind of religion based on Christ's teachings, but not on anything supernatural, something more earthly, bringing happiness here and now. Uh, so, so Tolstoy is, it becomes an interesting person because 
his interest in Christ is a negative one. He says that Jesus was not the son of uh, God. He uh, is not divine. Uh, his teachings are, and it is by these teachings that we can live and attain to a higher spiritual life with God. So he has to be in there, and he's a great offset to, to Dostoevsky, who, who argues the exact opposite. We need Christ, in particular, the grace of Jesus Christ, in order to fulfill those hard and lofty demands that Tolstoy so admired in Jesus' teaching, uh, teachings. So those two, uh, you know, those two naturally fit the scope of the book. And they, they, you could write a book just about their uh, grappling with the image of Christ. But I wanted to, again, I, I'm, uh, there, there's no volume in, in, in the West, no English language volume on the image of Christ in Russian literature. So I wanted to write a book that if there was going to be just one, it could be this one. It was going to give you a broad enough uh, look at the question uh, uh, of, of uh, how Russian uh, literature images Christ, but uh, but it would still be somehow um, you know reined in so that it could be finished and not be a multi-volume, uh, three thousand. Uh, page tome that no one would end up reading. So I, I said, these guys will speak for the 19th century. Uh, and I knew as well from teaching contemporary literature or 20th century uh, uh, Soviet literature to my students here at University of Rochester that, that there were two other authors who had conspicuously incorporated uh, images or interesting uh, imagings of, of Jesus Christ in their work, and that would be the novelist, playwright and novelist Mikhail Bulgakov uh, and uh, the poet and novelist Boris Pasternak, uh, who knew each other, uh, met uh, with each other. Pasternak actually um, visited Bulgakov at his, uh, in, in his final days. They had a private conversation. No one knows what they said. It's, 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 it'd be intriguing because by then Bulgakov had finished the one novel that is featured in my book, and that is the, the novel that everyone remembers Bulgakov for, a novel called The Master and Margarita, uh, that, that contains an inserted uh, alternate uh, gospel, if you will, um, uh, four long uh, ornate chapters on uh, a person who is looks like Jesus Christ, but he's been renamed and reconfigured. Je he's Yeshua Ganotsri, and he, in these four chapters, inserted in this larger narrative about uh, the devil's visit to Stalin's Russia in the 1930s, uh, this alternate uh, Christ uh, challenges our notions, our preconceptions of the gospel Jesus. So I knew that Bulgakov had to be in here. Now, Bulgakov, very well known in, in, uh, in Russia, of course, less known outside of Russia, except for this novel. He was uh, a satirist, uh, a playwright, and uh, unfortunately, like many of the great novelists, died uh, relatively young at 48 of nephrosclerosis, the same uh, disease that took his father. And he just barely finished this, his sunset novel, The Master Margarita, uh, before his death. In fact, he never fully corrected part two of the novel. So there are some textual inconsistencies and whatnot in that text that I address in my book that are part of my analysis. And I think reveal some aspects of his approach to the question of who is Jesus Christ and why am I writing this uh, totally reconfigured, almost secular Jesus in his place in my inserted novel in this novel, Master Margarita. So Mikhail Bulgakov gets there. And frankly, if, if a listener out there has not uh, ever heard of him, one uh, visit to a bookstore and, and a purchase of Master Margarita will do the usual trick, which is to uh, to convince uh, the reader who has never heard of Bulgakov that he's one of the great novelists of the of the twentieth century. And my final uh, my final uh, case study, Boris Pasternak, uh, he uh, you know a Silver Age poet, very very complex poetry, very complex early prose throughout the nineteen thirties. Um, a leading figure in the uh, Soviet literary establishment of, of one of those writers who managed to survive uh, Stalin's repression, Stalin's time, um, uh, intact and alive, uh, uh, surviving with by publishing translations at times. Uh, he uh, has an interesting story. He is 
uh, Jewish by um, by ethnicity and creed, but his parents were uh, non-practicing and were just fine with the with the family nanny taking young buddies uh, out to be uh, baptized, Orthodox. And we're fine with uh, her even bringing him to some of the divine liturgies. And and, and so as a young boy, Pasternak grows up in this milieu of the, uh, of the liturgy of the church in the, the, in the times right before the, the revolution sort of uh, makes church uh, attendance uh, not so possible. And um, but the but this is a formative moment for him, and so he has this sense of himself as this unique individual, somewhere between Judaism and Christianity, fully fully conceived, and um, carries that with him through his adult years until the war comes and uh, the the privations and hardships of the war uh, bring on some. Uh, reforms from Stalin. He allows uh, uh, church attendance again. He brings the, 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 uh, the church hierarchy out publicly to, to endorse the national effort against the Nazis and so on and so forth. And partly because of this, Pesnach reacquaints himself with the religiosity of his childhood and his early um, adult years and rediscovers this, uh, this Christianity, this idiosyncratic Christianity. And he writes this novel uh, meant to be a uh, a a, uh, a broad canvas of his times uh, of how Russia moved from uh, the imperial period into the early uh, Bolshevik and Soviet state. Uh, so he writes this narrative that concludes around 1929, uh, 1928, somewhere in there, right when Stalin is just consolidating power. And it's about this uh, doctor poet who writes, and we find out in the appendix to the book, it's actually not even an appendix, it's called Part 17, uh, a series of poems, uh, fully a third of which are uh, poems about Jesus Christ, and they're actually very traditional biblical poems. Uh, and we start to understand that this character, Dr. Zhivago, has himself many Christ-like attributes as in, and is, is himself a kind of Christ figure, though a very unorthodox one. So, the Mr. Margarita and Dr. Zhivago are the great Easter novels of the 20th century. It had to be in the book. And, of course, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, the great novelists uh, uh, of Russian literature in general, but also the two greatest novelists to grapple with uh, the image of Jesus Christ. That explains how the four of them got into the book. It also explains a little bit why they these four are sufficient to give us a sense for uh, for Russian literature's encounter with Christ over those two centuries. I have a little bit in the book at the end about uh, post-Stalin, post-modernist imagings of Christ. And I have a couple of background chapters in the book to give people some, uh, you know, again, specialists would know all this stuff, but some, some information, uh, social, uh, uh, historical, uh, theological, that is necessary to understand uh, other issues in the book. So another kind of general point of clarification then would be uh, if you could explain what it means to read uh, a text uh, apophatically. Uh, that's that's a, a concept that a lot of people might not be familiar with. Right. So it's interesting. You know, I, so apophaticism is uh, a theological approach to God that is more prominent in the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, than in the Western, although it's here in the Western Church as well. In the Eastern Church, uh, the Eastern Church sort of grabs onto this, uh, uh, this uh, notion of, of uh, this approach to apophaticism that, um, that, you just, that, that comes from the 5th century Christian theologian Pseudo-Dionysius, the Aeropagite, uh, who... Um, as early as then understands that this, and I'll, I'll just quote briefly from one of his his uh, central writings on this, that the supreme cause of every conceptual thing, that is God, is not itself conceptual. So uh, Pseudo-Dionysius says that the only way we can really know God uh, is, to, is to sort of unknow what we think we know about God. That is, uh, that the apophatic approach that he discovers is his apophatic theological approach is an approach that says 
we have to empty ourselves of all concepts of God and even all conceptual language uh, because God is beyond concepts and God is beyond conceptual language. We can't even begin to, to form thoughts about God. And so we have to empty ourselves. Uh, to do so, you, 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 you engage in a litany of, of, of describing things which God is not. God is not this. God is not that. And, and in fact, he, he gives us a little list. He, he goes on for quite a while. I'll give you a, a little bit. He says, God is not kingship. It is not wisdom. It is neither one nor oneness, divinity nor goodness, nor is it a spirit in the sense in which we understand that term. It is not sonship or fatherhood, and it is nothing known to us or to any other being. There is no speaking of it, nor name nor knowledge of it, darkness and light, error and truth. It is none of these. It is beyond assertion and denial. So he's even saying that, look, even when we engage in the apophatic approach, uh, denying, you know, sort of saying what God is not. We're still not getting there. Eventually, you have to get yourself to a place of, of, of utter and complete darkness and ignorance. And maybe there you might, in a moment of sort of transrational, uh, ecstatic uh, union, you might encounter God. Now, apophaticism permeates Russian monasticism of the 19th century. Uh, with its um, with its uh, uh, its reliance on 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 approaches to God that that eschew this sort of concept formation, uh, so um, so as one Dostoevsky scholar Malcolm Jones says, it's in the very air that these nineteenth-century writers are breathing. They know about this uh, approach to the Godhead. Uh, so, um, so some Dostoevsky scholars in particular in the last 20 years have sort of used apophatic concepts to get at some of the things that Dostoevsky is doing in his, in his novels. And as I'm looking at the, at the, at the, uh, novelists that I'm dealing with, I'm looking at novels who each, each of them in their own way produces very unorthodox, unorthodox images of, of Christ. In fact, even negative images of Christ. I mean, think of, of Tolstoy utterly uh, negating the divine qualities of Christ. And I'm thinking there's something here that unites uh, the four case studies and that is uniquely Russian, that to know the Godhead, to, to know Christ as son of God, as God, uh, is to somehow say what he is not. And, 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 and to add to this, I was looking at the tension that starts to really build in the 19th century as secularism makes such inroads into Russian intellectual life because of the growth of the historical critical method of biblical uh, studies. So it says that, hey, we can look at the Bible uh, in a more rational, rationalistic, scholarly manner and when we do, we start to discover that maybe this Jesus Christ is just one of those itinerant philosophers of which there were so many back in first century Judea. All these, all this secularism starts to make its inroads into Russian intellectual uh, culture. And, 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 and so both Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are saying, okay, how are we going to uh, talk about Christ to a society becoming increasingly secular? Uh, and, and, and to my mind, they, they, they do so from a negative vantage point, not, not through a, 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 some sort of apologetics, but by saying, here, I'm going to give you a Christ that you don't expect and see if you recognize Christ somehow if I do so. And that's, where, that's sort of the departure point for the book. And certainly you can see that in the 20th century, we've got two authors who are writing in an officially atheist state. Uh, so even, I guess the impulse there is even more so they, they know they can't really affirm Christ. So what can we do? Well, let's maybe, let's maybe do something that's less affirmative, but more revelatory and maybe even publishable at some point in Soviet, uh, in Soviet times. Hmm. That's, uh, so in the, in light of that, you know, way of thinking about your approach to these books, then, uh, what would you regard as say the, you know, a key scene from, from demons and the, the brothers Karamazov that really kind of illustrate, uh, you know, in, in some total, how, how Dostoevsky's approaching Jesus backwards in that fashion. 
Well, you know, it, it, it all sort of starts with a letter that he writes to, to this uh, wife of a Decemberist who had when he was on his way to four years of, of, of hard labor in Siberia for his participation in a radical uh, the radical Petrushevsky circle as a, as a young uh, man. She's a, a, a wife of a, of a Decemberist rebel who had been exiled uh, already earlier in, 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 in the very first year of Nicholas I's reign for uh, proposing that uh, there be a constitutional monarchy. Uh, she, she and all these other wives of the Decemberists, they followed their husbands into exile, those who weren't hanged. And, and so she gives, uh, she gives Dostoevsky a Bible on his way to uh, prison, which is the one piece of literature you can have in prison, and slips a, a 25-ruble bill or something like that in the spine for him to use in prison. And so when he gets out of prison, he writes her a letter, and, um, and in it, he talks to her about his faith. And I'll quote partly from it because it sets up why I decide that Dostoevsky comes dangerously close to to uh, giving us uh, a Christ who is not the Christ he thinks he's giving us. He's giving us a Christ who may be even not divine. And, and it points to a, a methodology in his works where all of a sudden he seems to be spending more time about giving us reasons why we should not believe in the biblical Christ than maybe we should believe. So this sets up my, my comment I'm going to make on the Brothers Karamazov. In this March 1854 letter, he tells Natalia von Wiesivna, I am a child of this century, a child of doubt and disbelief. I have been and shall ever be that I know until they close the lid of my coffin. Now at the same time, though, he points out that he has a potent symbol of faith in his life, in which all is clear and sacred. He says, this symbol is very simple, and here is what it is. To believe that there is nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable, more courageous, and more perfect than Christ. Now, if he left it there, he'd be fine. But he's Dostoevsky, so he can't, he has to always go on and on. He exaggerates, he has this hyperbolic streak. And there not only isn't, but I tell myself with a jealous love, there cannot be. Again, if he stopped here, he'd be fine. More than that, if someone succeeded in proving to me that Christ was outside the truth, again, if he stopped, he might still be okay. And if indeed the truth was outside Christ, I would sooner remain with Christ than with the truth. Now, what did Dostoevsky just do here? This is well before he starts on the great you know, metaphysical novels of his mature period. He's just indicated that even if you say prove, that Christ is not the Son of God, is not divine, that there maybe is no God, he's going to stick with Christ no matter what. So what is this? This is not really an entirely an affirmation of faith, is it? Because it's a faith in what? If there's no God, what are you going to have faith in? You're going to have faith, he says, in this Christ outside the truth. Well, Christ outside the truth becomes a very problematic moment in demons because uh, there you have... Uh, uh, a character like uh, Shatov, who uh, is ecstatic about this sort of Russian messianic Christ, but doesn't believe in God. And so you wonder, well, this is indeed the Christ outside the truth that Dostoevsky is telling us about. If there's no God, then how? Then, then the Christ that, that Shatov believes in is not divine. This is a Christ outside the truth. But where, where does it lead? It leads to all the chaos and destruction uh, associated with uh, Dostoevsky's depiction of the revolutionary, the, the radical materialists that that, uh, that terrorize a, a small provincial town in his novel. Uh, but it also alerts us to the fact that Dostoevsky seems to allow, here in this letter and in his mature novels, for, for both outcomes, for both belief and unbelief. And in his later novels, when, you know, when these are the 1860s when materialism has made secularism has made such inroads into Russian intellectual life into the um, into um, educated society. Uh, he uh, he feels by then that that maybe an earnest outright defense of Christ is no longer possible, and so he he kind of goes back to this idea as well. Maybe I can conjure belief out of unbelief, and so. To me, and, and, and I think many would agree with me, many of his novels are really, really give us more reasons not to believe than to believe, but he's doing so with a very 
uh, with with a with a, a, a an angle in mind here. He's doing so to show us, well, this is what unbelief. This is how unbelief might suddenly reveal belief. And indeed, in in demons, there's the great censored chapter at Tekins where we have Stavrogan, the hero of uh, demons, meeting with this uh, with this uh, Orthodox uh, priest uh, who tells him that the most uh, fervent atheist actually stands on the next to last step to the most complete faith. And this sort of reveals Dostoevsky's program, as it were. But it works in both directions. And this is where I get to Brothers Karamazov. A lot of people think that Brothers Karamazov is Dostoevsky's most eloquent pronouncement on the need to believe in the need for Christ. And indeed, in many ways it is. But it is also his most profound exploration of unbelief in the character of Ivan Karamazov. And what an apophatic analysis reveals in that novel is that there, that one of the things that Dostoevsky seems most fervently trying to do is not so much make an apologetics for faith, say through the through the chapters on Father Zosima, the sort of the writings of uh, Father Zosima that Alyosha puts together and that we read as uh, in, in the novel, but rather the most convincing and and interesting affirmation of faith happens in the journey of Ivan Karamazov, uh, his journey into unbelief and his different theological propositions, which all reveal a moment that can suddenly turn his unbelief into belief if he but allows it. So to give you just one example, by the time he gets done reciting his poem of the, great, of the Grand Inquisitor, which is a great uh, devastating critique of why Christ's teachings fail us in the real world, his brother, to whom he's reciting this, the, the pious Alyosha, who himself confesses maybe he doesn't believe in God, uh, suddenly exclaims the first thing he says when, when, uh, when Ivan is done. He says, but, but your poem praises Jesus. It doesn't revile him. And I thought that's a strange moment. And no one really talks about that in the criticism. I mean, they mention that. They say, well, maybe Alyosha is talking about the fact that the poem of the Grand Inquisitor is so critical of Christ because he criticizes how Christ gives us all this radical freedom. I mean, we can't handle radical freedom. But in essence, actually, there's an apophatic operation as well in which, what, which we can say that what Ivan is doing with his depiction of Christ in the Grand Inquisitor is actually saying to us what Christ is not. So that, like Alyosha, we suddenly exclaim, but, but that's not what Christ is. And in saying what he's not, you're actually praising what he is. And for me, that apophatic moment uh, is uh, present in, in, in other areas of both Brothers Karamazov and in other novels by Dostoevsky. So that's how I, I take this theological concept and I turn it into a bit of a literary uh, method. And I'm not saying that these writers are engaging in the kind of theological exercise one would do if one were practicing an apophatic approach to finding the Godhead so much as saying that these writers all seem to be, uh, seem to be giving us distorted, uh, negative, uh, unexpected imagings of Christ with the idea that perhaps only then we can maybe realize or understand what Christ must be. And they leave it all, even Dostoevsky, rather open for us to decide uh, who that Christ ultimately is. There's nothing dogmatic about any of these four writers' depictions of Christ, even Dostoevsky's, who, though he said he was going to write Brothers Karamazov as a vindication of orthodoxy, ended up really writing a rather unorthodox novel. And he himself wasn't a great attender of divine liturgy. Uh, so here's where we get to uh, an interesting moment for all of our writers, revealing through negation. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So is that uh, uh, why then I'm going to hazard a, a, a thesis here that um, at the end of the, the great conversation between Alyosha and Yvonne at the cafe, then is that why that that conversation simply ends uh, with the kiss where God or where, where Alyosha, uh, if he said anything, that would be too positive an affirmation of God. So by not saying anything and just kissing his brother, that's that's kind of apophatic in its own way. Well, it is. In a sense, what, what Alyosha does is he plagiarizes from the conclusion of his brother's poem. You know, you know, it, the, he, Alyosha asks him, well, how did things end up? And uh, Ivan tells him, well, uh, you know, Christ, who, by the way, is forbidden – uh, from saying anything because he cannot add to the fund of revelation already given uh, to humankind until this, until his second coming. And this apparently isn't his second coming. So he remains silent throughout the whole interview. The only response he makes to the Grand Inquisitor is he reaches over and kisses the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, and uh, so, uh, so uh, Yosha does the same thing and Yvonne chides him for his plagiarism. But the but the point is uh, exactly that it's it's a kind of a non-response. Uh, it's a kind of an open-ended uh, uh, affirmation of a negation, as it were, and uh, a, a sign that maybe the the negation uh, has has caused a revelation that that might be one of faith. And Dostoevsky leaves that open. He always left the question of faith open. He never. In his novels, no matter how, how much Nabokov says he does, he's never forcing on us a kind of a proselytizing uh, literature. All of his novels are entirely open-ended, and maybe of them all, Brothers Karamazov most of all. I mean, here we have a novel where at the end, uh, we don't even know whether Dmitry Karamazov is really going to follow through on his great mission to suffer for the innocent baby he sees suffering in his dreams. I'll go and suffer for all the innocents out there. Or whether he's going to escape. There's this crazy escape plan that's been hatched that his brother Alyosha no less is involved in. Is, is he going to escape? Is he going to suffer for the wee one? Is Alyosha, he's been told by his, by his elder to go out into the world Will he lose his faith? He's already confessed he might not believe in God. Um, uh, will Yvonne come out of his brain fever? We don't even know that at the end of the novel. And if he does, will he be a believer or not? Dostoevsky leaves all of this open uh, because he doesn't want to, to uh, prescribe uh, uh, conversions for us. He wants us to to take this, this these negative reflections, if you will, and see if they reveal something. He takes unbelief and says, here's unbelief. Does it? What does it conjure up for you? Uh, for in, in terms of belief, uh, it's a neat it's a neat moment. Yeah, I, I certainly have have pondered that scene for many years. So I was curious to ask you about it. Yeah. So on the on the subject of Tolstoy, then uh, something that occurred to me when I was reading your book was I was thinking back to whenever I read War and Peace last and how. Um, how Tolstoy is, is so skeptical of people who claim to claim to know all the answers, you know, all the, the ridiculous generals who think they're controlling events, but really they don't, uh, and and so on. And so I, it occurred to me when I was reading your book that where you're pointing out how Tolstoy accepts Christ's teaching and rejects Christ himself, uh, occurred to me that Tolstoy has really high confidence in his own powers of reason here, that he can just outright say, well, Christ's teaching was correct, but, but Christ himself uh, wasn't divine at all. And I don't know, is, that a, is there a tension here? Uh, what makes Tolstoy so, so certain when in something like War and Peace, is, you know, it seems to me like he's profoundly uncertain about the world he lives in? Well, the funny thing about War and Peace is that um, 
there is that discourse in the novel, but at the same time, throughout the novel, he's slowly building up his own theory of history. And uh, by the time you get to the midpoint of the novel, uh, the novel's form starts to shift, and and more and more there will be these brief introductions uh, to uh, you know the part that is going to unfold that are sort of just pronouncements from the narrator himself. Um, that uh, state the uh, the next uh, formulation in, in Tolstoy's theory of history. And so by the end of the novel, you have this whole uh, Tolstoy counter-narrative to traditional historical discourse that he then, feeling insecure that we might uh, not have properly noticed all of this as we were reading this long novel, he decides he's going to have an epilogue. There are two epilogues. The first one is a traditional epilogue where we visit the characters 10 years or so down the road and see what happened to them. And then there's this other epilogue, another 50 to, depending on your translation, to 75 pages, where he goes through and restates this whole theory of history uh, in no uncertain terms. This is what history must be. Uh, it's, it, you know, it's a history that reveals to us a greater dependence on on uh, outside causes and a, and, a, and a far less degree of, in, of of volition and personal freedom than we imagine, he ends the novel on a very declarative and authoritative, if not authoritarian, note. So when you get to that part of War and Peace, you 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 you've kind of been whiplashed because he's been using his argument about you can't know what's going on in a battle, you can't know the course of history. Uh, because of all these miniature factors that can change anything, but then he gets he builds this into a theory of history that that, that is very declarative and very very much saying this is this is how history really works, and you, you and it sort of goes against the spirit as you say of what he's been preaching earlier. So really, it's not surprising that by the time he gets to his so-called conversion period, that he he declares these teachings of Christ are the best things you can best way you can actually not only find happiness but find union with god and moreover what does he do he seizes on the five most difficult pronouncements sort of the new commandments from the um from the sermon uh on the uh on the mount or the sermon on the plain and he says these five things are actually quite doable and you know they're, they're really in many ways they're really they're really not he, this where christ says things like you know you were told uh do not murder well Anyone can go through a day not murdering somebody. I'm going to tell you, if you are even angry with somebody, you've committed murder. There, how do you like that? And and so Christ goes through all of these things. He says, you were told to not commit adultery. I say, if you even lust, you commit adultery. Uh, you know, uh, swearing oaths is is lying because no one can really keep your keep your word. And uh, you know, you, you were told you have to resist evil. I'm telling you not to resist evil. If someone says to you. Give me your cloak. Well, you have to give them your tunic as well, and 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 the most importantly of all, told Christ says, uh, you know, love those who hate you. So these five sort of unfulfillable commandments become for Tolstoy the most reasonable things in the world that if we just put our minds to, we can achieve. And once we achieve it, we've got paradise on earth, just as he wanted back in his 1855 diary entry. Uh, so you see, he's he's first of all not at all uh, shy about saying, you see. This is it. I know that the, the, these, these Christian teachings are the most important. You'll be happy if you just follow them. And moreover, you think these are unreasonable. They're not at all. You just need to do them, and then you'll be happy. Whereas, whereas Dostoevsky would look at that and say, you can't do those five things unless you had the grace of Christ. And that's where those two differ. But that's Tolstoy. I mean, that kind of authoritative language is there throughout his entire career, and it really comes out in this post-conversion period. Hmm. So what uh – um, you know, given Tolstoy's own kind of, I guess I, I see it as kind of a tragic end anyway, does he, does that, that high confidence you, you're talking about, does that, does it ever look to you like he was kind of shaken in that at any point? You know, I don't, I don't think he was, but I do think he was, um, he painted himself into a corner because as soon as he, as he comes up with this thing that he dreamed about doing in 1855 in his diary entry, he suddenly realizes that he's become the new prophet and there are pilgrims coming to Yasnai Palyana, his estate, to see him and he's corresponding with Mahatma Gandhi and he's become this world figure 
and he's actually become that person in War and Peace that he criticizes the most. He, he says that the Tsars and the Napoleons of the world are the, the least free of us all because they are uh, sort of highest on this um, pyramid of a scale uh, where their actions are most determined by those around them. Leaders simply reflect in that way what all the causes, all the causes, and the different people around them, you know, sort of lead them to to uh, to promote. That's what happened to Tolstoy himself. By the end of his life, he he he, he was rather paralyzed, I think, uh, of being of, of of having sort of. Uh, uh, turned himself into this new prophet for a different kind of Christianity. So maybe that flight from Yasna Pagliana wasn't so much just from his wife and the intolerable family situation that he was struggling with for so long, but even a, a flight from this sense of being pen, you know, hemmed in that, 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 that he might have felt at this point being a new prophet of Christianity. A bit like uh, Christ fleeing into the wilderness, uh, come to think of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, to get away from all of this, 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 this press of expectations. So, uh, kind of moving into the the, the Bolshevik era, then uh, you talked about something that I'm guessing most people aren't going to be familiar with, and that's the the God Builders movement. And I was thinking here, if, I don't know if you've read Yuri Slozkin's book uh, House of Government or not, where he's talking about Bolshevism as a millenarian cult. Uh, and um, I, I, have, I have not read that book. It's a fantastic looking book, though. Oh, quite, it's incredible! Quite the saga. I mean, it's something one of a thousand pages or so. Yeah, well, and it's you know, there's it's not too subtly kind of a, a you know a play on on Tolstoy's vision. You know, there's a great line at the beginning where he says, "This is a work of history. Any resemblance to fictional characters is purely coincidental." <laughs> you know, it, it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic uh, book. And anyway, I. Uh, I thought maybe it'd be it would be helpful for folks if you uh, talk for a bit about this kind of early, uh, you know, really radical phase in Bolshevism that that because we're used to hearing about uh, you know the atheist state and so on. Where the, the, uh, how's this God Builders movement uh, play into that? Well, there. So the God Builders are sort of a reaction to the God Seekers. The God Seekers, who were a group uh, that Dmitry Mirzhkovsky uh, forms and his wife uh, Zinaida Gipius, uh in the uh, teens, uh, there were all sorts of religious uh, societies and such forming. There was a sense of apocalypse in the air at the at the fin de siècle of uh, uh, the the nineteenth century. And into the 20th century, there was this idea that there was a great cosmic retribution that was going to be visited upon Russia, and more specifically, that somehow it was going to come from Asia. And there were three significant poems that I'll, that I'll talk about this in terms of an Asian invasion, much, much like the Mongol invasion. Uh, the, the God Builders is sort of a reaction to that because it starts to develop again in the teens. People like Alexander Bogdanov and Anatoly Lunacharsky, uh, who later becomes the first commissar of enlightenment in the young Bolshevik state. There are people who are responding to this impulse of a kind of a, it's kind of a, a combination of a religious impulse and a Promethean impulse to, um, to make of uh, the revolution, something, something quasi religious, even well, mystical, I would say, more than quasi-religious, becomes a bit of a religion later on, as, as I discuss in the book, and as everyone can see, looking at uh, the the Soviet state. It, but it's not surprising that there, there should be this impulse. See what what Lunacharsky and 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 all of those um, God builders were after is um, to capture some of that idealism that was generated, uh, that the religion generates, and that's that that. Uh, that settles around the image or the figure of Jesus Christ himself. As a matter of fact, Lunacharsky called Jesus a, this unique leader of the proletarian masses of Galilee, you know, a, a proletarian hero, a teacher of great love and also of great hatred. Um, and in so doing, he actually reveals that um, that this idea that secularism is a is a um, is a result of 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 atheism is a little misguided. Secularism also arises when you realize that uh, 
people like uh, Jesus Christ and his teachings can speak to an idealism that has nothing to do with uh, belief in God or the church and has everything to do rather with this belief of this, of this higher idealism, which, of course, perfectly describes the early Bolsheviks. These are people who are going to build the new Jerusalem. Uh, these are fanatic believers, as it were. So uh, we have uh, revolutionaries who are being um, uh, executed for attempted assassinations and assassinations. And what are they doing? They are actually affirming uh, that it's, it's, it's Jesus Christ that helped get them where they are. Uh, this um, uh, this uh, Andrei Zhilyabov, uh, who uh, was put on trial in 1881 for helping to organize the assassination of Alexander II, said uh, in his defense, I deny orthodoxy though I affirm the essence of the teachings of Jesus Christ, the essence of his teaching was my primary moral incentive. So when you're talking about imaging Christ, you, in, especially in the Russian context, you can't just talk about it in a religious sense or in the sense of, of, of something to do with believers. Uh, you, you can be sure that the young atheist Bolsheviks were true believers, but they believed in, uh, in this um, other ideal. It was a perfectly a human ideal that we have it in our hands, human beings without God uh, to, to bring the ideals of great moral teachers like Jesus Christ, who was a man and not a God into reality. And what uh, Bogdanov and Lunacharsky did with the God building movement was simply to capitalize on the, on the atmosphere of the silver age. This, this quasi religious atmosphere, this, this, um, this, uh, building sense of an apocalypse to say, this is the meaningful moment. This is the belief system that, that, uh, that makes sense now. And if there's anything mystical about it, it has to do with the fact that it is human beings that uh, are the source and summit of all greatness in, in the world. And that's a little bit about God building. In fact, though it was discredited uh, rather quickly in the early uh, in the 1920s um, it, it certainly emerges uh, in uh, the cult of, uh, of the personality that that is attached attaches itself to Stalin and really sort of permeates all of Soviet culture with its attempt to to, to overlay on top of religious holidays Soviet ones and to create Soviet saints and to create a whole new sacred language so the the god builders feed right into this uh tendency in soviet culture so uh um on the subject of bulgakov then um if, if that's the case and what's what's so dangerous about bulgakov being you know prohibited from writing is there is there something about his or publishing i guess not writing but is is there something that you know about what's in the master and margarita that's so profoundly dangerous to the the Soviet project. Well, you know, the thing about the Master Margarita is, um, by the time he's writing it, uh, he he is he has had a very rough spell in the in the young Soviet uh, theater world, where he he had early successes with his plays, but because he is a satirist. And because satire is a dangerous thing, especially in a state looking for complete orthodoxy and complete um, belief in the the order of things, um, he he starts to have a hard time getting his place uh, on the stage. He's finding it a hard time even becoming employed. He actually writes Stalin a letter saying, "Please let me leave the Soviet Union." Uh, when Stalin writes back, uh, offering him, well, do you really want to leave Russia? Uh, if I gave you a, 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 you know, a, a post in a different theater, would you take that instead? You know, he ends up staying, encountering the same kinds of problems eventually. But it, it's really not that Bulgakov so much is trying to get this novel published in Soviet times because he doesn't finish until shortly before his death. And there was no attempt to publish it until the 1960s, 1966, 67 is when it comes out in a slightly truncated form. It's just that by then he's been discredited. And what he's also seen when he looks around him is um, that, uh, that the, the, uh, that the, that the, what's replaced um, the traditional ideas of morality is something that is so steeped in politics as to be, dangerous and suspect. So he's trying to go back 
and image Christ as a way of, I think, um, reanimating uh, our uh, our understanding of of maybe the true source and summit of 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 of, of morality. He has a formative moment and in, in the 1920s as he's looking through a stack of these of Bizbojnik. This is a an anti-religious magazine that's being published in the 1920s. And it contains all sorts of harsh satires and cartoons about, of course, um, religion and the church and priests and so on. But also, it there there are these uh, incredible sort of slanderous uh, uh, takes on Christ himself. And he says, this is beyond the pale. Say what you want about the church and belief, but leave Christ alone. And I think that's where he gets this idea of, okay, I'm, I'm going to have this novel word where the devil comes to Moscow for his spring ball, and he's going to encounter in this uh, course of events a writer who's written a novel on Christ and tried to publish it in Soviet times, only to be persecuted like me. And in this dialectic, we'll, we'll find what emerges about higher truths. So... Uh, I'm looking at the time here. Uh, I'd like to talk to you for another hour about Bulgakov <laughs> because, well, he's so great. But uh, maybe on the subject of, of uh, Dr. Zhivago, then, you said that uh, the main character is, in a sense, both fully human and fully divine. I was wondering if you could, could explain, like, how is that the case? How is, how is that character Christ-like in the sense of both being all too human and also divine at the same time? Well, so uh, so Yuri Zhivago is uh, not divine, but he uh, paradoxically affirms a very traditional Christology in poems that are published after or left after his death, some of which are published. Certainly, they're all in the novel, Dr. Zhivago, about some 25 poems and about, I think, nine of them are on Christ and Christian themes. And there's some mixed poems too, where Christian themes appear in other contexts. Uh, what what is interesting is what Pasternak is doing with this with this uh, this this dialectic. We have very traditional biblical Christ in the poems, and a lot of the events from Christ's life duly depicted there. Yuri Zhivago himself, whose name and whose uh, Zhivago, the Living One, uh, evokes uh, language from the Bible reserved for Christ. Uh, who has many attributes uh, that that um, that put him into a Christological light? Who works at the elevation of the Christ Hospital? Who uh, who is uh, this person who who kind of goes through his per, through, through a private Golgotha, private passion? He what he what Pusnak does is he takes this character and he says, "I'm going to see if I can distort or." Um, uh, estrange the traditional Christ of these poems by giving us a Christ figure, Yuri, who ha- does ha- you know evokes Christ, but he's also a guy who has two extramarital affairs and produces uh, three extramarital children. And I'm going to leave it to the readers to say, how can a Christ figure be a philanderer? And uh, and someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection of the body. This is something he pronounces in the novel, and so on and so forth. And I'm going to let I'm going to let these two things come into collision: the the uh, the poet and his poetry, and in this collision, see what what is revealed about Christ, about what Christ must be. You uh, you think that. Um I was thinking about the last, the last part of your book where you're discussing more contemporary authors. Um, I was curious uh, if you think that people who are doing image, giving images of Christ in, in more recent Russian literature, do you think that the context they're writing in more resembles uh, the context in which uh, Bulgakov and uh, Pasternak were writing or the, the context that Dostoevsky and Tolstoy were writing in? Well, um, the post-Soviet period in particular uh, is one in which there's been a public resurgence in professed belief or professed adherence to uh, Russian orthodoxy. Now, of course, uh, church going in Russia is about 7% of the population, so no one's going to church, but some 71, 72% 
identify themselves as Orthodox Christians. So writing about Christian themes now or on Christian themes, perfectly non-problematical. In fact, uh, there's it, it, it can even be said to be uh, pro-state because the state has, as in the old imperial days, has sort of become a great or the church has become a great ally of the state again and compromised itself in some people's eyes in doing so. Uh, the Soviet period, though, the 1960s, when we have people like Yerofeyev writing or, uh, or, I, or let's say, um, 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 Dombrovsky in his novel, the, the Faculty of Useless Things, they're writing uh, novels that will never be able to be published because they're explicitly about Christ in Soviet times. That's more like the the era of that Bulgakov is writing in, or Pasternak is writing in. When you read, unless through some extraordinary intervention, are not going to see these things be published. But now you can publish. But ironically, no one's writing a Christ novel anymore. No one's writing. I mean, I'm, I've yet to see a novel uh, with a sustained Christ narrative uh, along the lines of the four uh, case studies in my book. What about? Uh, I just happened to read. Um... Uh, Vodolazkin's novel, uh, Loris, um, that, that seemed to kind of, uh, carry forward some of the holy fool themes from, um, you know, like the idiot or something like that. Uh, is that, is that something you're you know familiar with? Or? Well, very much. You could, you could make a case for that. And, and, um, uh, were I, were I, you know, I didn't bring in, uh, I didn't attempt any analysis of the most recent writing because I was trying to, frankly, because my publisher was keeping me limited in how many uh, words yeah. I could keep in this book. Yeah. I actually cut a hundred pages and thirty thousand words out of this book to get it into into covers. So, wow. uh, but one could say, one could say that that uh, you could, uh, and and this is something I would be more interested in doing. You could look at Bodolaskin's uh, book as uh, the uh, most uh, uh, likely uh, subject of, a, of, of, of serious extended Christ image, imaging that we have today. And still not quite on the scale of, of my forced case, case studies, but the closest thing I would say that we have today. Yeah, since I just read it, it's kind of been on my in my mind. You know, the uh, it's my current obsession, I guess. Yeah, uh, maybe since we're about out of time here, I want to uh, lay a big one on you, and that is, uh, uh, if, if somebody was thinking about really kind of taking a dive into the Russian literary tradition, uh, what what would you recommend that they start with first? Uh, I know I could I could riff on that subject for days, but uh, what, what, do, what do you think about that question? Well, you'd have to – I think the best uh, compromise answer to that would be to say, okay, you'd have to pick one from each of the two great centuries. So, so for instance, for 20th century, you want to get someone hooked on Russian literature, you get them Master Margarita. I have not had a single student who's picked up that book who has not been totally enchanted with the whole matrix of, of uh, the novel – and its concerns with belief, with romance, with uh, politics, with uh, prohibitions, cultural prohibitions, so on and so forth. That would be the one for sure. I'd say give this, if they don't want to read something too dated, to give them Master Margarita. You go to the, um, to the 19th century, I'm going to have to pick something from Dostoevsky because he's the most provocative. It can't be Brothers Karamazov because it's too demanding. Uh, so what you give them is something like Notes from Underground, that will totally blow them away, especially when you understand that what the underground man is trying to get at is the need for Christ, although he never says it. In fact, when Dostoevsky tries to say it in chapter 10 of part one, it gets censored out because they think he's making fun of Christ. <laughs> the, the need for Christ that suddenly emerges in the underground man, what's the underground man talking about? He's talking about the same thing that we encounter here. Uh, he's talking about the materials who tell us, hey, I'm sorry, you thought you, you were uh, had an eternal soul. You don't. You're just matter, and when you die, you're going to go into nothingness. It's like Stephen Hawking, who said, the afterlife is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. Well, when a man like Stephen Hawking who sits around all day thinking, says something like that, you go, oh, my God, I guess that's true. We're doomed. This is all we got. But uh, – but you got to be like the underground man and say, well, let's push back against that concept a little bit and see what we can make of it. So I'd say give them the notes from the underground and let them go uh, with the underground man and, and, and his rebellion against anything that constrains us as human beings. 
Well, let's see. I'll have to. I'll have to think about that. Yeah, uh, that's a. Um, I've I've wondered that many times as people have asked me what they should read. So I will. Uh, I will take those those suggestions with all due consideration. It, it has the virtue of being short. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks for thanks for being with us, John. That was a uh, quite an interesting book. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it. I'm very grateful. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, to share with you my thoughts. Okay. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.